generative AI is here and it has changed the rules of the game. Experts like Seth Godin and Robert McKee have been very clear. The authors who are going to make it in this business are those who are writing truly amazing, knock-your-socks-off innovative stories. The bar is that high. AI will replace mediocre writers. But at some point, everybody is mediocre. So what do you do? You educate yourself. And the good news is that there's still time, but you've got to start leveling up right away. I'm Valerie Francis, and I've got a series of webinars to help you do just that. My specialty is helping authors like you put theory into practice. Understanding the tools of our trade and being able to apply them with precision is no longer an option. It's an absolute necessity. So go to valeriefrancis.ca slash webinars for more information and sign up for the notifications. You can't afford not to. If you want to write stories your readers will love, there are three things you need to do. Understand storytelling principles, see how other writers have applied those principles, and then use them in your own work. Here on the Story Nerd Podcast, our goal is to demystify story theory. We'll help you with the first two steps so that you can get started with the third. My name is Valerie Francis. I'm a writer and literary editor, and I focus on stories by, for, and about women. And I'm Melanie Hill, writer, editor, and poet, and I have a passion for spy stories, fairy tales, and master detective novels. On today's episode, Melanie pitched Operation Mincemeat so that we can study stakes. This 2021 film was directed by John Madden from a screenplay by Michelle Ashford, and it's based on the book by Ben McIntyre. Of course, there will be spoilers because we can't talk about the movie without talking about the movie. And as always, we would love it if you could give the show a rating and review. For Apple Podcast listeners, you can do it right from your phone. Just go to the show's landing page, scroll to the bottom, click the five stars. It's that simple. All right, Miss Melanie, what do you have for the genre of Operation Mincemeat? Well, this week, despite what people may think, I actually have this story down as a war story and not a spy story because this is a deception operation, not an espionage or information gathering spy story. So that is why I've classified it as a war story. And it meets most of the conventions of a war story and obligatory scenes as well. Now, the secondary genre Now, I don't think there's really a strong internal story for either Montague or Chumley. However, Montague does patch his marriage up to Iris, but there's no real change in him that we see. So that's what I've got. Valerie, what about you? Oh, this is interesting. I'm going to talk about this as a war story in my little bit. Uh, So it's funny that you came up with war story as well. And I mean, I, I I think it's interesting what you're saying here about genre, because in my opinion, Operation Mincemeat is a film that can't quite decide what it wants to be. It could be a spy story. It could easily have been a spy story. It could have been a love story. It could have been a performance story. It could have been a global internal genre story. But I don't think it quite works as any of them. Yes, you said Montague does patch things up with Iris, but that's all way off the page. I mean, we just get that in some title cards at the end. I mean, who cares about that? So I'll talk 
more about that when I get to my bit. But um, Melanie, right now, tell us how you got on with your study of uh, steaks this week. All right. Well, you know, first of all, before I go and look at steaks and do an analysis of that, I'm going to, to, to share some of the interesting facts that I found out that are related to Operation Mincemeat because, you know, at the top of the show, I quite openly and enthusiastically say that I love these sorts of stories. Now, the trout memo, which is the brief that presents 54 ways the Germans could be lured or deceived, was signed off by Admiral Godfrey, but it is actually probably written by Ian Fleming, who was Godfrey's staff officer at the time. So that's very interesting. The second thing is that the shorthand for the 20 committee was actually written with the Roman numeral XX. So they were called the Double Cross Committee. Now, the initial role, their initial role in World War II was to locate German agents, turn them, and then run an information deception program into the ABVA and the DS. And now this is how the term double cross or double agent, those terms, this is where it comes from. So I love that. This is like all these little tricky things that, <laughs> that you know, you take for granted, but you don't quite know where it came from. Now, the 20 committee were also so successful that they turned approximately 300 German agents against Germany and that there were only a handful of agents in the UK that actually escaped their detection. And when I say a handful, I literally mean less than 10. Now, Operation Mincemeat was the precursor to the deception operation called Operation Bodyguard, which supported the D-Day landings. So this was very much a test case in some ways about how to run deception operations and then scaled up um, significantly during Operation Bodyguard, which was a series of smaller operations in, in the deception plan. Now, right, so that's my, that's my sharing of really interesting trivia about, about this movie and about the actual events that happened in real life. Now, what I love about this story is the possibility of all the things that can go wrong and that don't, and it lays it out quite clearly, I think, at every stage of the operation. Now, during this season, I have put forward the idea that what happens through a story is a series of progressive complications that are risk events along the spectrum of possible events that will either move the character closer or further away from their object of desire. And the progressive complications have likelihoods and consequences. Now, this movie is a perfect example of how this part of my theory works. At every stage of this plot, it is easy to see how the whole plan is broken down into its component parts, and each of those parts has a series of risk events with possible consequences and likelihoods. Right, so right from the moment Montague and Chumley get the green light to plan and execute what's called at the beginning Operation Trojan Horse, the audience understands each stage of the plan has many things that could go wrong at any given point in time. And each of these risk events has different levels of obstacles 
that result if they are realised. Now, I'm going to summarise and give an example of what I mean here. So let's look at the finding and preparing the body stage of the operation. And as Montague says at the beginning, let's start with the easy part and find a corpse. It, but it can't be anybody. It must be a certain type of corpse. So they wanted one that had drowned so it would show signs of the right cause of death, right, when it was found. But the only bodies in the morgues that had drowned were females and young boys. Then they realised they needed a male. He needed to be of fighting age. He had to be the right physical build for a soldier or a marine at that point. They must be whole, so with no war injuries, have a low rate of decomposition, no known next of kin as well. Now, this, despite being a war, was a very incredibly hard thing to find. And then what they did find was the only body available, which was the one of Glendale Michael. And he died from rat poisoning. Oh, now... What amazes me about this plan is that at every stage, the likelihood of some, that something will go wrong increases significantly. So what, but what you don't know from the movie is all the problems with the Glendale Michael body. So Dr. Bentley Purchase, who's the doctor that Chumley and Montague consult in the movie, gives them Duff Jen about the toxicity levels of the chemicals in the body and how difficult it would be to determine how, the, how Glendale Michael died, especially after he'd been immersed in mortar. Now, he did tell them in the movie that he'd have to be a highly skilled examiner to determine how that body died. But Dr Purchase's advice turns out to be wrong. There are three distinct phases of phosphorus poisoning that would have been easy for a practitioner to detect. There are also certain physiological signs associated with drowning that the corpse would not have had. And the planners completely underestimated the skills of foreign doctors. <laughs> now, again, some of this is alluded to in the movie, and but it is actually, you know, I've obviously read the book and I enjoyed the book and um, it's laid out in far more detail in the novel. Now, once they have or they find Glendale Michael's body, it has to be stored so it's not frozen and it has to be used so that decomposition doesn't compromise the cover story of a washed up body from an aircraft accident. So this gives Montague and Chumley three months to use the body, right? That's easy, right? <laughs> no, <laughs> this is a true story. So think about how the discovery of the body plays out later in the movie when we discover that the local doctor in Spain who's preparing to do an autopsy reveals that he actually specialises in drowning deaths. So this actually happens. This is something you could not make up even if you tried as a fiction writer. Now think back to the idea that there's a series of progressive complications that are risk events along the spectrum of possible events and progressive complications have likelihoods and consequences. 
So what do you think the likelihood is of a Royal Marines body being pulled out of the water during a war and being given a full autopsy by a doctor specialising in drownings in a country that's neutral? That's pretty impressive stuff and something you might rightly not plan for, right? But it happened. I just I find this really fascinating stuff of all the things that could go wrong and did not go wrong. It's quite amazing. Right, now for the cover story. Chumley and Montague, they need a name, they need a role, they need a service number, a love story, and also a photo of Major Martin, which is the pseudonym for Glendower Michael um, in the role that he's going to be playing. And they need Major Martin in battle dress. Now, I find the scenes where they are trying to take the photos of the corpse darkly humorous. And I can only imagine how difficult this must have been in real life. And I completely understand why they decided to use a person who resembled Glendale Michael in the end. That makes complete sense because I don't think you can reanimate a body even for a photograph, no matter how good the makeup may or may not be. Now, again, each decision that they make adds another potential complication with a higher likelihood of flagging the deception operation to the Germans. The use of personal details does increase the possibility of Major Martin being a real person, but it could also have the opposite effect. So, for example, if someone does stumble across two people having the same service number, it would raise questions. Now, while the complications of the plan as it develops and the subterfuge grow, Chumley and Montague set up and score a few own goals. The use of Joan's photo as Pam comes back to bite them in the scene when Teddy, the barman from the Gargoyle Club, breaks into Jean's home and quizzes her about the photo being in Major Martin's possession. Now, this event didn't happen in real life, but you can see how the stakes in the movie are the results of the smaller decisions that create opportunities and risks. These subsequent increases and decreases in likelihood and consequences as the time to launch the operation gets closer is actually something that builds a lot of tension. One of the unique features of a story like this is how cautious Montague and Chumley are with their communications when Major Michaels is delivered to the Spanish officials. What they have to do is play a game where they have to pretend that they don't want the Germans to read the contents of the letters when that's exactly what they want. Communication via secure and unsecured lines is a balancing act. So if England appears too keen initially, it will raise suspicions about the legitimacy of the situation. So they play a game of escalation. They start with calm inquiry and then raising it to urgency as time goes by. And they know that the Germans are listening on some particular lines and have access to some communication lines. Now, the stakes at each stage of the operation, I think, are very clear and they escalate nicely as the movie progresses. 
Now, I've talked a great deal about how objects of desires are critically linked to the story stakes. We've seen how the objects of desire and the stakes can change in a story, but in this movie, the objects of desire remain the same. Everyone's object of desire is to deceive the Germans into thinking the Allies will launch their invasion in Greece and Sardinia, so they move so the Germans will move their army and clear the path for the real location, which will be Sicily. The success of Operation Husky will provide the Allies with relatively uncontested control and access to the Mediterranean Sea. So it's a war story. So this makes sense that the strategic object of desire is the same as most of the individual ones. Now, there are some personal things at stake for Montague and Chumley. So for Montague, it's presented in his marriage. So when his wife leaves for the US and he becomes increasingly involved in creating Major Michael's cover story and he and Jean play along in their fictional Bill and Pam roles. Montague's brother's life is also at risk if he is caught in the act of espionage. Now, Ivor was a Russian spy and he would have been hung for treason if caught passing secrets to the Russians. Now, MI5 were aware of his espionage activities and they were monitoring him. Now, this is probably a greater risk to Montague's life than it's actually portrayed in the movie. So it is actually a pretty big consequence. Now, Chumley is slightly different He is presented as the lesser son whose brother died, a war hero. His grief-stricken mother wants her son's body back. This is used against him by Godfrey to spy on Montague and Ivor. But there's no evidence actually in real life to suggest that Chumley watched Montague or Ivor and reported back to Godfrey at all. Now, as a very, you know, again, I love this trivia, (laughs) and as a point of interest, It wasn't until 1952 when some coded Russian communications that were collected between 1940 and 1948 were actually decoded and they revealed that Ivor was running a Russian spy ring called X Group and that they were actually passing live information back to the Russians. Now, there's no indication that Ewan or Montague passed his secrets or shared his secrets to Ivor at all but it is a very very interesting conflict between the two brothers and I don't actually ever think it was a conflict between them I think they were both very much aware of what the other was doing and they may or may not have actually shared information between them but there's no evidence of that but it's a really interesting again sometimes real life is far stranger um, than fiction Now, I am a big fan of Ben McIntyre's books and most of the time, right, we dread dread out the books that we love being converted into movies and for most of the time it's with good reason. But what I found watching this movie is that this was a curious case of some of the book being better than the movie and then some of the movie being better than the book. Now, there are also some parts of the movie that vary wildly from the book And this is to create drama and tension on screen. Now, I won't go through and list those. If you're interested, though, I do recommend reading the book and comparing the movie. But the best part 
that's left out of the movie is when the letters actually get into the Germans' hands. Now, the role that Alexis von Renner plays, and Alexis von Renner, right, was Hitler's most trusted intelligence analyst. He was crucial to the success of this operation. Von Renner was an excellent analyst, and when he received the information contained in Major Martin's letters, he should have been more sceptical because there wasn't any validation of the veracity of the information. So von Renner, however, wrote an enthusiastic endorsement of the information which persuaded Hitler that the Allies were going to target Greece and Sardinia to launch their offensive into southern Europe. Now, von Renner was anti-Nazi and Ben McIntyre proposes that he was aware of the deception plots for Operation Husky and also Operation Bodyguard but he passed on all the information regardless because he wanted the Nazis to lose. Now, von Renner's possible role in the success of Operation Mincemeat, plus the way the German intelligence services didn't question some of the more obvious oversights, was not known to Montague or Chumley at the time, and the very unlikely plan worked. And that's amazing to me. So we see at the end the amphibious landings and we hear the report that Sicily was taken with minor casualties and we celebrate with all the members of Room 13. Now, I am not joking when I say that I love espionage stories and this is the best sort. It is the one for me that combines planning and execution and as a former planner, it's something that I really appreciate in seeing that on the screen. But before I finish up today, I just want to point out that we've actually bookended the season with Colin Firth as a naval officer. Now, that wasn't deliberate, (laughs) but it's an interesting coincidence. Now, Valerie, over to you to tell us what you discovered about empathy in this movie. Well, yes, I noticed that we've got a Colin Firth (laughs) sandwich going on here. And that's that's quite a happy thought, isn't it? And and Matthew McFadden and Colin Firth both played Mr. Darcy as well in obviously different versions of the story. But, you know, I mean, I'm very much in a trivia mode this week, right? <laughs> Not to diss Matthew McFadden because I do like him, but that version of Pride and Prejudice is the pits. I, do, I agree with you. It's not my favourite either. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Empathy, empathy. So Operation Mincemeat is an interesting study because I don't think it works all that well. I mean, these may be fighting words, Melanie. I don't know. When I first watched it, yes, absolutely, I was entertained well enough. I was sitting there with my popcorn, happily watching Colin and Matthew McFadden and Penelope Wilton. However, that whole thing with Ewan and Jean pretending to be Bill and Pam bothered me to no end. On first viewing. And if I'm being honest, I found the allusions to James Bond and Ian Fleming distracting. If you scratch the surface at all with this movie, it falls apart and falls apart fast. Now, I haven't read the book. So I only have the Netflix movie as presented as a Netflix movie. That's all I'm working with. 
it's marketed as a spy story. And Melanie, I know you've made the distinction between a spy story and a deception story. And yes, I think that's valid. Absolutely. But it's not one the viewer would make. Viewers can only go by the marketing, right? Which is the blurb and the trailer. And those things point to a spy story. It's about British intelligence officers scheming to trick Hitler. The trailer shows five characters, two officers, two spies, and a secretary. There is no mention of Ian Fleming. So the movie begins with a typewriter clacking and a voiceover talking about stories, particularly war stories. Right? This is what you're talking about, Melanie, Melanie in terms of uh, genre. The whole story is summed up in a couple of lines right at the beginning of the film, and that's okay. In fact, it's, it's excellent. The problem is we don't know who's talking. Eventually, we see a man sitting at a typewriter, and we know that the voiceover um, is actually the words that he's typing. So he's thinking the words as he's typing, and we can hear him thinking, basically. He seems to be writing a novel, but it's incongruous to the action. Rather than peaking questions in the viewer's mind, it's, it's confusing. Who is this guy and why does he seem to be writing a novel? He's sitting there in a military uniform. There are other people in the room also in military uniforms, but he's the only one doing anything. He's writing a novel while the others are waiting on tender hooks. So it seems odd, right? And not odd in a good way, odd in a confusing way. Now, this is a great time to talk about narrative device. We haven't mentioned it at all on the podcast, I don't think. So what is narrative device? Why do we care? So basically, narrative device is the delivery method for the story. Sometimes it's obvious and sometimes it's not. For example, in Bridget Jones's diary, the device is a diary. All first-person narratives are memoir, just the memoir of a fictional character. We're meant to see this film as a novel that Ian Fleming is writing, but it doesn't work. And I, I thought that might be what they were doing. And then I did a little research and yes, that's what they're trying to do. All right. So it doesn't work. Why doesn't it work? Well, we don't know that the guy talking is Ian Fleming. <laughs> His character isn't in all the scenes, so how could he know what happened? The marketing blurb on Netflix's page tells us that this is a true story. So if so, why is it being written as a novel by Ian Fleming? I can't wrap my head around that one at all. If we do accept that this is a story by Ian Fleming, then it should be a spy story because that's what the audience automatically thinks of when, uh, you know, we all think of Ian Fleming, right? And the most grievous, in my opinion, is that it, it's a device that is not evenly applied throughout the whole movie. It's there at the beginning, um, mostly so that they can drop little 007 Easter eggs all over the place for fans, which distracts from the story. And then this device shows up again at the end, but it's not there in the middle at all. So I don't know what's up with that. Now, when we find out that Ian Fleming is a character in the film, and this is about 12 minutes in, I, for one, was completely drawn away from the main storyline with Colin Firth, like one of the biggest stars in the world, and even he could not hold, even Mr. Darcy could not hold my attention when we found out that there was a character 
in the story named Ian Fleming? Because, I mean, I thought, wait, what, the, the real Ian Fleming? Or is there, they didn't name a character Ian Fleming. Surely, God, that makes no sense. Is this the real Ian Fleming? So I was taken completely outside of the story. That's a problem. Because if there is a rule to writing, you know, it, it's don't don't break the magic. Don't don't ruin the spell. <laughs> so the 20 committee is explained as the Roman numeral 20, right? So two X's. And Melanie, you already talked about this. That's as in the double cross. And this just further points us toward a spy story. As a side note, Operation Mincemeat is jam-packed, full, you know, full as an egg with exposition. It's everywhere. Not well-executed exposition, in my opinion. So this whole double-cross committee, that, uh, that whole idea points to a spy story, but it isn't a spy story. We've got the Iris Ewan Jean love story happening, and this is where empathy for Ewan is supposed to be established. I'm finally talking about empathy. So that's where empathy is supposed to be established, but it doesn't, doesn't quite work. We meet Ewan, and he's sending his wife and children to the U.S. for their safety, and he can't explain to them why he's unable to go with them. Now, we can empathize with that. That is easy to empathize. He's keeping his family safe while also doing his duty to his country. If we were in those circumstances, we'd like to think that we would be equally heroic and that we would do the same thing. We would serve our country and keep our family safe at the same time. No problem there. We're meant to think that Ewan believes in his marriage, that he loves his wife and is a romantic. Now, why do we believe this? Well, it's because of what he says. So here's what he says when he's talking to Hester in one of the earliest scenes in the film. He says, I've pleaded my case many times for the family, for the marriage. Iris says that marriage has changed, that romance and love belong to the young. I don't believe that or feel it. And the thought that they may never be coming back. I want Iris to be happy, even if it comes at the expense of my own happiness. Okay. So this is a man who clearly is in love with his wife and he wants his marriage to survive. So far, so good. But any empathy we have for this man evaporates when, you know, a month, maybe later, he's falling in love with Jean through painfully executed subtext. It's, it's terrible. It really is terrible. It's cringeworthy. And it's Colin Firth. Whoever would have thought that a love story involving Colin Firth would be cringeworthy? Well, it's here at Operation Mincemeat. Because the filmmakers didn't know what story they wanted to tell, in my opinion, they didn't tell any of them properly. They've all gotten short shrift. We tuned in for Operation Mincemeat, which is, you know, quote unquote, the true story of deception, which we read in the blurb to mean spy story. We, the audience. But that main storyline is getting lost in subplots. Subplots like Ewan's marriage, Charles's relationship to the memory of his brother, Jean's personal life. It's getting lost in James Bond Easter eggs and a narrative device that confuses matters. And because all of these subplots and the James Bond Easter egg and all that kind of stuff, because that's eating up screen time, 
the Operation Mincemeat storyline is delivered in huge amounts of exposition. And that's really too bad because I, I, I wanted more of that. I wanted to feel the tension more in the deception story and, and the world of spies and all that good stuff. Cause that's what I thought I was getting. If this was a love story or a story about Ewan's inner growth or change, then by focusing on that storyline, the filmmakers would have been able to take us on the journey with Ewan. That way, the empathy that was initially established would have continued. As it is, when we see him becoming enamored of Jean, we're thinking, well, wait a minute, you just said you were committed to your marriage. It takes us out of the story, and it makes us lose empathy with Ewan. His object of desire, or what he wants, is murky, and as a result, it's confusing for the audience. And then the whole thing about them pretending to be Bill and Pam like oy with the poodles already. Now, what saves this film? Because I had to think about it. Because like, I did when I watched it the first time. I I enjoyed it, and I even messaged you, Melanie, and said, "Hey, this is this is kind of fun." So, what was it I was connecting with? Well, it's because I really love the cast. These are actors I enjoy: Colin Firth, Matthew McFadden, Penelope Wilton, Jason Isaac, Mark Gaddis. And the list just goes on and on. I actually have more empathy for Charles than I do for Ewan. And it's interesting, Melanie, that you tell me that that whole storyline is not even true. <laughs> so Charles's elder brother is their mother's favorite. And he died in action and is openly and widely regarded as a hero. Charles has to live with a bereft mother, knowing that he probably will never be able to heal her heartbreak. And in the end, Charles becomes a war hero too. He saves hundreds of thousands of lives, but he can't tell anyone. And he didn't tell anyone. He remained a quiet hero in the shadows. And his brother was a, a, a public hero to the whole community. Now, add to this the fact that it's Charles who experiences unrequited love. And, you know, how can you not empathize with that? Stories of unrequited love are lovely. Anyway, there's all kinds of rabbit holes I could have gone down with Operation Mincemeat. I'm curious to read the book now because it sounds like there might be more of the deception story in the book, which is what I kind of thought I was getting here with the film. So, yeah, I tried to contain myself and not go to, down too many rabbit holes this week. Unfortunately, as far as empathy goes, uh, I'm giving Operation Mincemeat a miss simply because they think they tried to do too much in the film. And when you, when your story's about everything, it's about nothing. And we kind of lost the, we lost the Operation Mincemeat <laughs> in Operation Mincemeat. Now I do have theories about how empathy works in genres that appeal to the intellect primarily. Uh, so spy stories, uh, mysteries, uh, thrillers, that kind of thing. So I'm eager to do more study in that area. Unfortunately, Operation Mincemeat really hasn't given me the best opportunity to test them. Oh, it's interesting that you say that. So sometimes, right, when you read a book and you have a bit more information about what's going on and what has happened, you can fill those gaps quite easily mentally when you're watching the movie. So, you know, it's 
I completely skipped over the whole Ian Fleming writing bit of that because that wasn't in the book. And to me that wasn't like it was something that they introduced in the movie but it also wasn't something that I was really quite interested in. It is that planning and the the planning of the deception operation. But it's interesting as well that you say that when you talk about, you know, it's sold as a spy story or it's marketed as that. What we don't see very much of, because we do see a lot of spy stories, so about gathering of information, but it's the application then of, well, so what happens to the intelligence once it's gathered? This is an example of what happens and how it's used in real life. We don't see very many of those stories either. So it's very hard maybe for people to understand that's what that is, that that is, so they've used the intelligence They've got networks of spies and are running multiple deception operations over the long and short term period of the war. But this is one example of where they tried something very new and a little bit different. And again, I, I know that because I've read the book, right? I've read and I and I enjoy those sorts of stories. And I, you know, as a planner in the past life, I find that fascinating. So it's really funny that I've sort of skipped the bits that don't mean very much to me or that weren't in the book as I watched the movie and I could fill in those gaps in the story and understand things that that you didn't or anyone else who's just watching it without any knowledge of what happened, they can't do that. So anyway, I'm just trying to justify why I probably didn't. <laughs> criticize it as much as you did (laughs) anyway all right my action step for this week so if you are interested in using this movie as an example of how stakes are built make a list of each part of the plan then attribute all the small events or decisions that montague or chumley make and whether or not they have a positive or negative impact on the ability to progress to the next stage And that wraps it up for this week and for the season. That means next week, Melanie and I will do a roundup of everything we've learned in the past 10 weeks about empathy and stakes. To support the show, please leave us a rating and review and tell your writer friends about us. For access to writing templates and worksheets and more than 70 hours of training, subscribe to my inner circle by visiting valeriefrancis.ca slash inner circle and follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Valerie underscore Francis. If you'd like to get Melanie's tips about books to help you read like a writer, visit Melanie on Facebook and Instagram under Melanie Hill author or find out more about her at melaniehill.com.au. And remember, story theory doesn't have to be difficult. It's a tool to help you write more, not less. So take it one step at a time and have fun. Mm -hmm.